This podcast may contain explicit language. Welcome to the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast, the show that uses a unique grading style to redefine what the greatest movies are. I'm Tom Duncan. And I'm Dana Duncan. Tonight we apply our patent-pending Stanley rubric to From Here to Eternity from 1953, directed by Fred Zinneman, written by Daniel Teradash, starring Burt Lancaster, Montgomery Clift, Deborah Kerr, Donna Reed, Frank Sinatra, and Ernest Borgnine. From Here to Eternity was met with almost universal praise from critics and would go on to be nominated for 13 Oscars, including Best Actor for both Burt Lancaster and Montgomery Clift, and Best Actress for Deborah Kerr, winning eight for Best Picture, Director for Zinneman, Supporting Actor for Sinatra, Supporting Actress for Donna Reed, Screenplay for Teradash, and Cinematography Black and White, Film Editing, and Sound Recording. The film has also been recognized on two AFI lists, AFI's 100 Years 100 Movies from 1998 at number 52, and AFI's 100 Years 100 Passions at number 20. And in 2002, it was selected for preservation in the National Film Registry. So, Dad, let's start here. Since this episode is releasing on the 81st anniversary of Pearl Harbor, let's just give kind of a little bit of background on the event itself. Why is the attack one of the defining moments of the 20th century? Well, because it brought the United States directly into World War II. What it did was it triggered America's uh, declaration of war on Japan because Japan was an ally of Germany and Italy. Germany then declared war in the United States, I believe, uh, two days later. And uh, that brought uh, the United States into the war in Europe as well. So it ultimately turned the tide. Britain was fighting alone in Europe. Uh, The United States had to combat the Japanese in the Pacific. And it had monumental impact upon history of the world. And not just the countries directly combating it, but it altered the power structures resulting ultimately, I guess, in the United States and the Soviet Union being the only two great powers left. Part of the reason I ask is, is, and correct me if I'm wrong, the United States prior to getting into the war really was under a policy of isolationism, despite the Lend-Lease Act and some of the support that it gave to the UK at the time and its previous involvement in both World War I and the Spanish-American War that also resulted in us fighting in several, I guess, civil wars, like in the Philippines in the early 1900s, we were a country that really was not trying to participate on a world stage or a macro level in the way that I think most people in America at this point have come to understand America as being the world trendsetter, more or less. Well, we were isolationists. There was a strong policy towards isolationism. It regained footing in the 1920s after World War I when people saw the cost of war and what it was involved in trying to become a player in the world stage. 
But even then, by 1940, the United States had reinstituted the draft. One of the things I noted in here is this is supposed to be taking place at the Army base in Oahu in 1941. I didn't see draftees uh, because we would have had a lot of different draftees coming into the Army at that point in time. I don't know whether it's accurate or whether they just did not send new recruits to Hawaii. So then, even though I put this on the list for celebrating the direct anniversary since the episode will come out on December 7th, I guess in re-watching the movie again, the event almost seems incidental to the to the point of the movie. Did you get that sense, or do you think it's more tied in than uh, I guess I understood it to be? It is tied in, and this is how. The, the film is really two parts. Three quarters of the film is a story about three soldiers fighting in pre-war or in the pre-war army and their personal lives and the lives they're leading with the women that they love. But ultimately, December 7th changed all that and altered the path that each took. And as a result, the war itself irreparably changed the trajectory of everyone's life that was directly involved, either serving in the army or civilians would ultimately have to make sacrifices or would have family or members in the military during the war. Now, not to necessarily to be a contrarian in this point, but one of those three people doesn't even make it to December 7th within the movie. And one of the other ones doesn't make it past the night of December 7th. Correct. And so it's hard for me to see outside of the lone surviving primary character within the movie, a change within the person from the life that they were truly living to how they were going to be going forward because of the event. He clearly demonstrates a certain leadership. And even though he's resistant to being an officer, Lancaster's character specifically shows the qualities of being a leader in the moment that he is called upon. True. But I mean, ultimately, Pruitt and Warden are directly impacted by the war itself. And the fact, the final scene with the women leaving Oahu, you can see how that also is being impacted and they're seeing how things are changing. It's not as big a factor in it, but it plays as part of it. And I think to some extent they're talking about the soldiers realizing that war was coming. They talk about it. They think it's likely to happen. I don't think anybody at that time thought it was likely to be uh, anything that was going to be an attack on the Hawaiian Islands directly. That was a surprise to everybody involved, including General Short, who was the Army commander. So then that leads me to ask the follow-up question, is this a war movie? I think when we ask whether something is a war movie, there are certain staples to the definition of what a war movie is. And usually it involves at least multiple battle sequences within the course of the movie. There's really only one quote-unquote battle sequence within this movie, and it's fairly short. Uh, Yes. I don't think it's a war film. 
I think it's just set in the army and war is imminent. So in that way, does it kind of play out as a reverse, the best years of our lives? Yes. This is the pre-war versus the best years of our lives, which is post-war. Surviving coming into the war. This is the way things were leading into the war. So then what is this movie about? It's about the three men and how they uh, live their lives within the context of being in the pre-war army and uh, how they uh, had interests in various women or love interests or conflicts within the army and other soldiers. And it's basically about those three soldiers. That's not what the movie's about. Yes, on a surface level. Come on, you got to do better than that. Okay, well then, if you think you're so good, tell me what it is. You have a lot of different themes. You could talk about identity. You could talk about belonging. Those are things that are clearly coming through in this movie. You could talk about disillusionment. But I really think if you're getting to the heart of the matter, in the most beautiful place on earth, in the organization that's supposed to be the most disciplined, we find the most undisciplined and unhappy people of all. Well, okay. But I think that's what it does is it it takes away the facade of what should be and exposes what really was, which is it was still made up of people. And when you have people, you have disorganization. You have things that don't match what they're supposed to be. You have people who are frustrated, unhappy, uh, jaded about their circumstances. And maybe it just struck me, but this might even be a larger allegory for the attitudes of the times. If you're talking about pre-war 1941, you're talking about a country that's still on the final stretches of the Great Depression that had a series of disillusionment and years of just trials and tribulations trying to fight their way through and just simply survive. And the war kind of woke them up to what the reality of the situation was and to rally around a certain camaraderie in institutions that eventually spurred them forward into becoming the post-war power that they became. I can see your point on it. I mean, there were, it didn't explore. Maybe the book did a little better job of exploring how they came to be there. But I mean, with Pruitt, he talks about his, you know, he's a soldier. He's going to be a 30-year man. A lot of people joined the army at that time because it was a staple job. And you weren't at war. You didn't envision being at war. And so, you know, you were there to do a duty or a job. And to earn a paycheck, because uh, it was hard to earn those paychecks any police sells. So what is your relationship to this movie, then? This is a movie that I always wanted to see, that, I had, that I've seen more parodies of than I actually had seen the movie. I didn't see the movie until about 20 years ago, when I finally said, I need to see this movie, and found it, I want to say, like on Turner Classics, and watched it. So I don't have a huge or long following. I'm just well aware of the film and what the primary or or basic plot line was. I think this is only about the fourth time I've seen the movie. I know I've seen it at least a couple of times before this. Once I showed it to Sarah during the pandemic, I'd seen it at least once before that. 
it was a movie that I think I found like you on Turner Classic at one point in time and probably had it on your DVR because it fit two of the lists that I was trying to check off and have subsequently done so. It was on both one of the AFI top 100 lists of all time, and it was a Best Picture winner. And so this was just a movie I kind of crossed off. But it was one that kind of struck me as a little bit bigger than just being on one of those lists. I mean, there are tiers of Best Picture winners or of greatest movies of all time. And this is one that is a little bit bigger than The Life of Emile Zola. (laughs) Yeah, okay. So I do have some fond memories of this. And to be quite honest, it was really one of my first interactions with Montgomery Clift, who I've said for a while, and I think I've said it on this show at least once, probably when we did Judgment at Nuremberg, is I think he's the better version of James Dean. I I would tend to agree. I think I'm trying to remember some of the other films that Montgomery Clift did that Red River. Yes, at Rain Tree County with Elizabeth Taylor. He also did A Day in the Sun, which I don't know if you've seen that movie, but that's also an Elizabeth Taylor movie. And despite the tragedy and kind of the thriller nature of it, it's a really good movie. I had seen, or somebody had recommended, and I want to say it was my friend Andy Hemp, who uh, was my best man, recommended Rain Tree County to me. And I happened to find it in a used bookstore. And it was the summer in between my first and second year of law school and read the book and then had to see the film. So I searched and searched and searched for the film. And I think that was the first time I'd ever seen Montgomery Cliff in something. It probably would have been the early 90s, probably on American or AMC American Movie Classics when they actually showed old movies. So let's give everybody some background on the movie. Do you have a plot summary ready for us? I do. In 1941 in Oahu, Hawaii, Private Robert E. Lee Pruitt, Montgomery Cliff, is voluntarily transferred after quitting the Bugle Corps upon being replaced as first bugler. Pruitt reunites with his good friend, Private Angelo Maggio, Frank Sinatra, before meeting with the company commander and regimental boxing head, Captain Dana Holmes, Philip Ober. Holmes pressures Pruitt to join the company boxing club, but he steadfastly refuses because of a fighting-related tragedy. Holmes' adjutant, Sergeant Milton Warden, Burt Lancaster, cautions Pruitt against opposing Holmes, but Pruitt stubbornly declines to box. Soon the base is a cauldron of action as Holmes makes romantic overtures to Captain Holmes' wife, Karen, Pruitt starts a relationship with Lorraine, Donna Reed, a club hostess, while continuing to endure hassling due to his refusal to box. And Maggio starts a grudge match with Fatso Jensen, Ernest Borgnine, sergeant of the stockade. Each relationship seems headed for disaster as war in the Pacific looms. Thank you. Cast for this movie, Fred Zinneman as director, Daniel Teradash as writer, Burt Lancaster as First Sergeant Milton Warden, Montgomery Clift as Private Robert E. Lee Prue Pruitt, Deborah Kerr as Karen Holmes, Donna Reed as Alma Burke slash Lorraine, Frank Sinatra as Private Angelo Maggio, 
Philip Ober as Captain Dana Dynamite Holmes, Mickey Shaughnessy as Corporal Leva, Harry Belliver as Private First Class Mazzioli, Ernest Borgnine as Staff Sergeant James R. Fatso Judson, and Jack Warden as Corporal Buckley. Recognition for this movie? From Here to Eternity was released on August 5th, 1953. It made $30.5 million on a budget of $1.7 to $2.5 million and was the third highest grossing movie of 1953 behind Peter Pan and The Robe. From Here to Eternity not only became one of the highest grossing films of 1953, but also one of the 10 highest grossing films of the decade. Adjusted for inflation, its box office gross would exceed $277 million in 2017 dollars. The film was twice attempted to be turned into a TV series in 1966 and 1980. From Here to Eternity currently holds an 88% among critics on Rotten Tomatoes and an 85 score on Metacritic, and a 3.7 out of 5 on Letterboxd. Did you know? The title phrase comes originally from Rudyard Kipling's 1892 poem, Gentlemen Rankers, about soldiers of the British Empire who had lost their way and were, quote, damned from here to eternity. Did you know? Despite the positive response of the critics and public, the army was reportedly not pleased with its depiction in the finished film, and refused to let its name be used in the opening credits. The Navy also banned the film from being shown to its servicemen, calling it derogatory of a sister service and a, quote, discredit to the armed services. Did you know? Harry Cohn resisted the idea of casting Montgomery Clift as Pruitt as he, quote, was no soldier, no boxer, and probably a homosexual. Fred Zinneman refused to make the film without him. Did you know? Montgomery Clift threw himself into the character of Pruitt, learning to play the bugle, even though he knew he'd be dubbed, and taking boxing lessons. Fred Zinneman said, quote, Clift forced the other actors to be much better than they really were. That's the only way I can put it. He got performances from the other actors. He got reactions from the other actors that were totally genuine. Did you know? Burt Lancaster was so nervous about acting alongside Montgomery Clift that he was physically shaking in their first scene together. Did you know? William Holden, who won the Academy Award for Best Actor for Stalag 17, felt that Lancaster or Clift should have won. Sinatra would later comment that he thought his performance of heroin addict Frankie Machine in The Man with the Golden Arm was more deserving of an Oscar than his role as Maggio. Did you know? Montgomery Clift, Frank Sinatra, and author James Jones were very close during the filming, frequently embarking on monumental drinking binges. Clift coached Sinatra on how to play Maggio during their more sober moments, for which Sinatra was eternally grateful. Did you know? Frank Sinatra credited Burt Lancaster and Montgomery Clift with helping him find his feet dramatically for the film. Prior to this, most of Sinatra's film engagements had been comedic roles or in musicals, but by working alongside such heavyweight actors, Sinatra was able to hone his craft in new directions. Indeed, he and Lancaster remained friends for the rest of their lives. Sadly, the relationship with Clift was not so long-lasting. Three years after From Here to Eternity... Clift was involved in a life-altering car crash that required facial reconstruction and left him addicted to pain medication. This, coupled with his alcoholism, made him a very different person from the actor who played Pruitt. At a party thrown by Sinatra, 
Clift made a drunken pass at one of the singer's entourage that ended up with him being thrown out of the party and denied access to Sinatra and his inner circle. Did you know? Frank Sinatra had personal problems of his own. The collapse of his marriage to Ava Gardner weighed heavily on him. It got so bad he announced to Montgomery Clift one night that he was going to kill himself. Did you know? An urban myth regarding the casting of Frank Sinatra was that the mafia made Columbia Pictures an offer they couldn't refuse. This, of course, was fictionalized in Mario Puzo's novel, The Godfather, and its subsequent film adaptation. The real reason for Sinatra's casting was mainly his then-wife, Ava Gardner, who was shooting a film for Columbia head Harry Cohn, had suggested to him that he use Sinatra. Although initially reluctant, Cohn eventually saw this as being a good idea, as Sinatra's stock was so low at the time that he would sign for a very low salary. Sinatra had been lobbying hard for the role, even suggesting he would do it for nothing, but he was eventually hired for the token amount of $8,000. Did you know? The now classic scene between Burt Lancaster and Deborah Kerr in the rushing water on the beach was not written to take place there. The idea to film with the waves hitting them was a last-minute inspiration from director Fred Zinnemann. Did you know? The MPAA banned photos of the famous Burt Lancaster Deborah Kerr passionate kiss on the beach for being too erotic. Many prints had shortened versions of the scene because projectionists would cut out frames to keep as souvenirs. And with that, we'll take our first break and we will be right back. Before we jump back into the episode, next week, to get ready for the upcoming sequel, we will be discussing the highest grossing movie of all time, Avatar from 2009, written and directed by James Cameron, starring Sam Worthington, Zoe Saldana, and Sigourney Weaver. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. Looking forward to that. Dad, best performance? Boy, there were a lot of great performances in this film. And I had to try to, to select... I went with Sinatra simply because he had no real background as a dramatic artist and he nailed the character and did quite an admirable job. So I went with him, although I really kind of wanted to also go with Montgomery Cliff, but I couldn't because I don't know. I just... It was really difficult, so I'll give honorable mention to Montgomery Cliff as best performance, but he was not my secondary performance either. Well, that's interesting, because I think this is the culmination of his entire acting career. I think this is the movie he's probably best in, just as far as pure performance. There's disillusionment, there's sorrow, there's depression, there's grieving... There are a lot of different, very unique and rather small emotions that he has to master within the course of this movie that I really don't think anybody else did. I thought that even though I enjoyed Lancaster and Sinatra and I have Sinatra for best secondary, I thought they were a little bit more one note-ish as far as what they had to do, whereas Clift was kind of pulling what I would say is probably an all-star performance of the 50s in this movie. I can understand. I went with Sinatra as best secondary, partially on a lot of the same reasoning that you came to, that he was not necessarily a professionally trained actor. This was not his natural calling. 
that he seemed to have a knack for it, at least in this movie, when he went up with other talented actors that seemed to raise the bar for him. The scene where he rolls the olives as dice to play craps while he's drunk and has escaped from the guard or walked off guard duty was actually his tryout scene that they had filmed for him to basically audition. And Zinneman liked it so much, he actually kept it in the movie. So you can see that even though, as we did in the Did You Know section, that Clift and Lancaster were able to work with and mold him, he still had some natural ability beyond the very cutesy, very minuscule roles that he'd been given up to that point. And this was the role that really kind of tested him. I think the pivotal scene for him is obviously when he escapes from prison and he has kind of his deathbed speech, more or less, to Clift as uh, he's on his last throes of life. It was a very good scene. I'll put it that way. I went with my best secondary performance with Burt Lancaster. He just had a strength throughout the entire film that it just seemed like he was the person that everybody in the film in some way either related to or leaned upon. He was like a bedrock for the entire film. And so this became kind of like a pivotal moment in his career. And I think it carried through the rest of his career and life as being this more or less tough guy. But again, I, I go back and I'm thinking about Montgomery Cliff. It almost is to the point of saying that Montgomery Cliff and the film are one and the same so that you can't isolate his performance from the film itself. But anyway, this was very, like I said, very difficult for me. So I went with Lancaster, but again, I think Cliff could very well have fit into this and I would have uh, no problem of changing my opinion. I just had to come up with something and this is what I did. Well, I think you could very easily give it to the editor for this. I think the editing was very well done. I think you could give it to the cinematographer. I think you could give it to Zinneman as well. I mean, any of those would be credible nominees in this one. I think that it's no coincidence that a lot of them were nominated and or won for their performances in this film. The one thing that I will mention, and it's because it kind of is something I think about when we're going through some of these films is who's the audience character. And I think it, this is one of the unique films and I think it's a good note of storytelling that the perspective of the audience or the audience character changes with each act in the beginning. You're kind of from the perspective of Baggio in that you can't understand why Clift or Prue is putting up with all of the abuse that he's taking from Holmes and Holmes's lackeys. From the second act, you kind of take on the perspective of Prue as more of this starts to implode on him, but also as Maggio kind of unwinds slowly and steadily during the course of the film. And then in the third act, you take on the perspective of Lancaster, who starts to give Prue a break and really tries to work with him, and then ultimately sees the tragedy within it all and is reacting upon that. And so I think it's actually a good blend of storytelling to be able to change perspectives within the movie so that it's a higher degree of removed for the audience than they otherwise would be if we just had one central character we're always looking in on. Sometimes when you have that, it feels like a little bit 
of emotional manipulation sometimes. I understand your point, and I guess to some extent I hadn't thought about that, but at, at times you do actually view the film and what's going on through the eyes of three different characters. So I can I can honestly agree that I see where you're going with this. So Most charismatic for me, I went with Donna Reed. If you don't give it to Donna Reed, it's probably going to Deborah Kerr, but I think how they relate to each of the men in these particular situations is very interesting in that they are with them, but don't actually want to permanently be with them. Kind of how they put up these guidelines or these barriers around their emotions, yet how their professions are interacted. I mean, one is the kind of estranged wife of the captain commander. Is that the correct term? Platoon commander. No, that's not the what they use within the film. Okay. Company commander. That's yes. what they keep using. Company G. And the other one is, even though it's not exactly said straight out in the film, is a prostitute. But how they display their emotional barriers, such as Donna Reed having this plan or desire for herself to become proper, quote unquote, and to live this life even though the only way to get there is through means that at least at the time, and frankly, even still now are seen as immoral by a lot of the, or the majority of the American public. So I, I found it very strange. And yet they're the most, I guess, relatable characters at times within the film, because you understand how unusual these guys are that love the army. Okay. Yeah. Well, I also gave it to Donna Reed. First of all, because I love Donna Reed. I've always loved Donna Reed. Every time I watch her in a film, I almost fall in love with Donna Reed. Because she just seems so approachable and so uh, you can connect with her emotionally. I'm going to go one step further. Okay, Donna Reed gets this role as being a prostitute for being, what was it? You know, they cleaned it up for because of the censors a prostitute. Name the next time that a lead character as a prostitute, you know, was something that became more wholesome and more envious. Probably Pretty Woman. Yes. And so I think uh, Julia Roberts is the modern day version of Donna Reed. No, Julia Roberts is much bigger than Donna Reed. <sighs> Only to the extent that Donna Reed had a limited, had a somewhat limited career because in Hollywood at that time, you aged out quicker than you do now. Julia Roberts had approximately 10 or 15 more years of popularity now than she would have if she would have been a star in the 40s and 50s. Honestly... I know that the roles in your mind are somewhat comparable, but I really don't think so. Other than that, they both involve a prostitution profession. To me, Julia Roberts is more comparable to Katherine Hepburn than she is to Donna Reed. No, I don't agree with that at all. A wholesome person that at the beginning of their career is seen as somewhat of a sex symbol that graduates into much tougher roles as they go along after they get through a romantic comedy phase, 
and then takes on some very meaty parts in the later stages of their career or the middle stages of their career, getting awards, attention, and recognition, then finally graduates to this, I guess, final stage for women, which is kind of, I don't know, not necessarily like the grandma, but the mother, the middle-aged mother type role, as we saw her in Ticket to Paradise recently. Hepburn was much more salty and cantankerous. Oh, and come on. You can't tell me Julia Roberts isn't salty at times. Uh, I don't I don't agree with that. I don't think I think their personas and the way they present themselves are much different. And I disagree with your analysis of the two being similar. See, because we've always said that Tom Hanks and Julia Roberts are kind of the every person type of actors. I view Hepburn as somebody who could fall into a lot of different roles and play the every person, whether she was playing a rich socialite or playing the, I guess I'm not even remembering exactly what the background of her character was. Was she a missionary in African Queen? Yes. She could fit into a lot of different various roles. The only other person, at least from an awards attention perspective that you might be able to relate is if you just purely went on Hepburn has the most Academy Awards for an actor slash actress with, I think, four Best Actress Awards, the only other person to have comparable would be, I think Nicholson has two Best Actors and two Best Supportings. But Tracy had two or three. He only had two Best Actors in consecutive years for, I think, Captain's Courageous and Boys Town? Yes, and then we had, Hanks had two. Yes, Philadelphia and Forrest Gump. Forrest Gump in back-to-back years. He's the only other actor to do it twice in a row. Although I thought for a time Russell Crowe was going to do it in the late 90s, early 2000s. Well, and he his performance in uh, A Beautiful Mind probably deserved... At the time, I thought he was clearly going to win for a beautiful mind, but having seen training day, I think Denzel really deserved it more. Yeah, I, I know. And he got his the year before with gladiator. So I really can't give too much of a a pushback on that one. Regardless, we're getting way, way off topic. Okay. So let's move to best scene then. I have Pruitt meets Holmes. So pretty much that opening sequence where he comes to the company for the first time. Then it kind of skips forward a little bit because a lot of it's just kind of sequential background. I skip forward to the first night at the Congress Club, which is about a half an hour skip ahead. Then on the beach, the famous scene, of course. And then I skip forward quite a bit again because I think a lot of the rising action of this movie is probably about the last 45 minutes or so. So I have Pruitt versus Galovich, the kind of fight sequence that we have within the film that kind of becomes somewhat of the pivot of this movie, at least for Pruitt. Maggio in the Brig, which you could also say is somewhat of the pivot point of this movie. Taps, which I think is by far the most emotional scene. The end of Fatso, so kind of his taking on of Fatso Judson and uh, the fight that ensues. All of it primarily being off screen. Thanks, censors. <laughs> Holmes's resignation... Pruitt's demise, and then floating out to sea. So the final, I don't know, three minutes of the movie. Are there any in there? Because I skipped over some long stretches in this movie that I didn't hit. 
No, I think you hit the primary ones. Out of this, what do you think is the best scene? I love the club scene. The scene where Prout and Lorraine meet, and then the start of Fatso and Maggio. I think that it's well done. It introduces you well to the characters. It sets the tone for at least two portions of the storyline that's going to go through the rest of the film. For me, it's Taps. For a very simple movie, given that at times we've seen how much Pruitt likes playing the bugle, and that being one of the few times that he's really brought it out and played it to its fullest extent. Yeah, we get kind of that jazz riff while he's in the club that one night that becomes impressive by itself. But we don't really get to see him in his full glory in the way that he talked to Lorraine about playing Arlington and the president being there and all of the pomp and circumstance that is involved in that. I think when he plays Taps and he's sobbing, but he just plays it twice and you have everybody just standing and watching him play this in awe of his ability and knowing exactly what happened what had taken place, and how much this meant to him. I just think it's an emotionally raw and powerful scene, and I think it's probably the best scene because it's Cliff's best scene, and frankly, I think it's one of Lancaster's best scenes too. Favorite for you? Pruitt's fight with uh, Galovich. I just think uh, I love that, the fact that he's finally fighting back. He's standing up for his rights. At the same time, Holmes is... uh, standing on the sideline, and he's being spotted by the commanders going, what the heck's he doing? Why is he not intervening? It's kind of like you're, you know, you finally get the feel of like, okay, something's happening to right the wrongs that have been going out or going on throughout this film. And to me, it's kind of a moment where I'm glad, I'm happy that things are starting to seem like they're resolving for those who are being abused, in this case being Pruitt. One of the few things that I do notice, though, in that scene is how little Pruitt's fighting back initially. He seems willing to take on the fight, but he's taking quite a beating early on. And then he just somehow wills or finds the inner strength to finally body up, and he just takes out Galovich. And it's really not much of a contest. So I'm wondering where within that scene he kind of flips the switch and what his emotional demeanor is as that scene is playing out. It'd be one of the few things that I would really like to kind of look into and play out, but they didn't really emphasize a lot during the course of the film. I'm not sure if that's part of the storytelling or how they shot it or how exactly that's fitting in with the overall story that we've gotten up to that point. But I do think it is a pivotal scene for how the rest of the movie plays out, as you mentioned. Well, and I think, you know, the the point they were making in there is when he was throwing punches, it was bodies. It was body blows. You know, he had blinded a, a boxer. And so he was avoiding hitting him in the face until it reached a point where he couldn't just hold back any further and he just pummeled Galovich. Do you think that the reveal of what the accident actually was in that scene 
should have been more emphasized instead of kind of a throwaway line that explains a little bit, but doesn't really go into more detail. I mean, they play up for two thirds of the movie that he was involved in some fighting related accident, but then to have that be just thrown out there, even though they've kind of led up to this and made a big deal about it, just seemed like it wasn't fitting for how they'd set up to that portion of the movie. I know. I mean, obviously this was an extremely emotional moment for him in the film. And yet when he's disclosing it, he seems rather unemotional as he's describing it. I just don't like when we have huge plot points like that and they seem like throwaways. (laughs) Especially in something that's supposed to be one of the great films of all time and a best picture winner. Most indelible moment for me, I was struck by how little I remembered of this movie other than just kind of the general plot sequencing, but as to some of the ending, I had it completely wrong, but one of the few things that's just seared into my memory is Pruitt's death and demise at the end of the movie. It's one of the few things I could really remember, so that's got to be my most indelible because having not watched it, I remembered that the most. (laughs) You know, and I and I, I understand your point, and to some extent I agree. But the most indelible moment is the moment that everybody recognizes, which is Lancaster and Kerr on the beach with the waves. If you just show that clip, people who have never seen the movie will probably have some idea of where that clip came from. I think you could ask 100 people, and if more than five came up with it, I'd be shocked. <laughs> okay, well, we'll try that. I'll, uh, I have a cross uh, spectrum of the general public in my office, from educated to fairly lower education, and I'll put it up on my, or on my tablet, and I'll walk around and ask people if they recognize where this clip is from. All you have to do is get the picture and show it with no context at all. And just say, what is this a picture of? Okay. I will do that. And I will come back next week and we'll take a moment where I will tell you the results. All right. Well, that leads us to our second break and we'll be right back. Before we jump back into the episode, you can sign up for our newsletter at the new Find us on Instagram, Twitter, or TikTok at the handle at gmodepodcast, or find our new Facebook page under Greatest Movie of All Time Podcast. Dad, do we have anyone to remember this week? Yes, again, unfortunately. We lost today. Christine McVie, or Christy McVie, uh, 79. She was a British musician. She was in Fleetwood Mac. The Mac portion is Mac V. She was a classically trained musician who wrote and sang several of their classic hits, Don't Stop, Over My Head, You Make Love or Loving Fun, and Say You Love Me, among others. Most of those songs have been used in various movies and such. And I would say that they've kind of had a comeback in the last couple of years as a few of their songs have been used commercially within films like Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 that used the chain or the fact that we have a fairly, I would say, regular Chevy commercial that's gotten another one of their songs back into somewhat of a vogue state. Well, true. And Fleetwood Mac actually had gotten back together and did some tours 
with uh, Lindsey Buckingham, Mick Fleetwood, and and Stevie Nicks, Christy McVeigh or McVeigh was not interested in participating in part because her ex was Mick Fleetwood, and uh, no, and her ex was John McVie. Excuse me, was John McVie, and she basically had a really poor relationship with him and with Mick Fleetwood and really did not want to participate in any of the more recent things. I I don't know exactly. They did not provide a cause of death, but I thought that I had heard that she had been in poor health for a while for various things. Both are incorrect. One, she had rejoined the band and was part of them in the, I guess, last 10 years or so. There was a whole thing in the obituary that I linked to on the site of her coming back to the band and the whole decision for her to come back about 10 years ago. She did release her own, I guess, combination or collection of works earlier this year as kind of a solo project, but she'd been in and around the band. She was part of the Hall of Fame induction, I think about 15, 16 years ago. Mm Mm-hmm. Additionally, she apparently had died from a very short illness. They didn't relate what it was, but apparently she had just recently become sick and passed away from it. Okay. I don't know if it's related to any other long-term illnesses or something, such as like she'd got pneumonia and that was a downturn and whatever else she seriously had. But from at least what the collective cause of death was, is apparently it was this short illness. Okay. We also lost uh, Clarence Gilliard, 66, an American actor, a longtime character actor. He had been in Walker, Texas Ranger, was in the film Die Hard, and was uh, a regular uh, participant in uh, the TV show Madlock with Andy Griffith. He had several recurring roles during both of those TV shows, Matlock during the 80s and Walker, Texas Ranger during the 90s, where I think he was like the second character or second primary character to Chuck Norris in that series. But I think a lot of cinema fans most remember him as the enigmatic Theo, the black hacktivist or whatever from Die Hard that becomes Han Gruber's left-hand man. (laughs) Yes. He also was a professor in the film department later in life at UNLV. (laughs) I did not know that. We also lost Albert Pewen, uh, 69, uh, American film director. He did uh, The Sword and the Saucer, uh, Cyborg, and Captain America. You want to try that again? Uh, had directed The Sword and the Sword. Had directed The Sword and the Saucerer. It's not Saucerer. Well, the what the hell is it? Sorcerer. Okay. Tomato, tomato. No, it's not. Yes, it is. Saucerer? The sword and the saucerer. <laughs> he did it again. The sword, the sword and the sorcerer. Cyborg. Can you and- do it without laughing? <laughs> <laughs> Fuck you. <laughs> I should just leave this part in. Yeah. Feel free, you asshole. <laughs> If you leave it, if you leave it in, you have to leave in the fact that I called you an asshole. Of course, I'd leave that in. Sure, the sword and the sorcerer. Yay! Yeah, fuck you. 
Cyborg Captain America. So I have no idea if the pronunciation of his name is Pyun, Pyun. Most of his movies were low-budget B-films that went straight to video, but he did accomplish the first feature film for the Marvel Avenger Captain America that's more regularly known by most of America at this point for the Chris Evans movies that uh, popularized this last decade. Well, this is always my standard. Anybody who can do things that I can't automatically has my admiration. And anybody who's actually directed a film, and I don't care how good, bad, or low budget it was, has my admiration. You have admiration for Ed Wood? Yes, actually I do. Somebody with limited talent, limited funding, who just decided he wanted to be a director was. He had the balls to do it. Well, we're definitely going to put that to the test when we do The Room early next year. (laughs) Yeah, okay. All right, and lastly, we lost Irene Cara, 63. She was an American singer, but she was also a songwriter. She won an Oscar for uh, Flashdance. What a feeling. Uh, She was in the uh, film Fame. Was a huge musical star and actress in the 80s. Her career kind of petered out, but uh, we lost her this week as well. She is most notable for being the lead character in Fame from where she basically grew up and went to high school at the time. She was from the Bronx, and so a lot of the attributes that she imbued in her characters were things that she just grew up on. She was just good at playing herself. But as you mentioned, she was an Oscar winner for co-writing the song Flashdance from 1983. She was also a regular in her teen years on Electric Company, a show that you've brought up many times on this particular program. And so with that, we remember all of these people fondly for their contributions to both TV, music, and the movies with a moment of silence here in their honor. Thank you. Let's go to best funniest lines. I'll start off. Robert Ely Pruitt. Nobody ever lies about being lonely. Karen Holmes. Why did you tell the truth? You just don't want the responsibility. You're probably not even in love with me. Sergeant Warden. You're crazy. I wish I didn't love you. Maybe I could enjoy life again. Karen Holmes. If you're looking for the captain, he isn't here. Sergeant Milton Warden, eyes Karen Coyley. And if I'm not looking for him, Karen Holmes, he still isn't here. Pruitt, a man should be what he can do. Sergeant Milton Warden, Rose, do you know why I like having you serve me beer? So as I can watch you when you walk away. Pruitt, a man don't go his own way, he's nothing. Warden, maybe back in the days of the pioneers, a man could go his own way. But today, you got to play ball. Karen Holmes, to Sergeant Warden standing outside her porch in the pouring rain. Well, you'd better come inside. You'll get wet. I'm done. So am I. All right. Let's go to the Stanley rubric. Legacy is up first. Do you want to start or go second? I'll start. Industry, five. This launched Sinatra's career throughout the 60s, 70s, 80s, into the 90s when he passed. It really started Burt Lancaster's career. 
this was his first big film and it carried on to uh, a couple of decades of films and Broadway performances. It also launched Ernest Borgnine, who went on in, to win an Academy Award for Best Actor in Marty and launched his uh, TV show that was uh, instrumental in my early childhood, McHale's Navy. It's a classic. Everybody, you know, has within the industry has the images of some of the scenes from it. I think it's a perfect five for the industry. From the public, I'm giving it a 3.5. People know the name. A lot of people have seen it. Some people know it very well. But I think it's lost some luster through the years. And there's a whole group of people who do not know exactly what it is or what it's about or have ever seen it. So to that extent, I went with a 3.5 and I went with an 8.5 overall. So it's possibly good that you went first because you've already changed my scoring on this one. I was going to give this a 4.5 for the industry, partially on the backing that I think it's faded over time, even within the industry's mind, because I just don't think they think this movie has aged nearly as well as some other ones from the 50s. But if you make it so that you're promoting Lancaster, Sinatra, Borgnine, and several others, I think you could make an argument for Deborah Kerr was somewhat made on the backing of this film as well, then I think you have to raise it up to a five because this institutes a lot of their careers. And while it really was not the start of Montgomery Cliff's career, we already talked about several of his biggest movies were before this. I think this is the culmination of all of those movies to get to this point and probably what could have been a best actor win for him during that year. I haven't seen Stalag 17 yet, and I know you're a very fond promoter of that movie, but it would be hard to compare what I think is one of the better performances of the 50s against what you have said is probably one of your favorite film roles of all time. So I'll Holden, go with I'll just comment that Holden was pretty darn good. So I'll go with a five, but from an audience standpoint, let me also say that if you were to do a similar study to the one that you are apparently planning on doing with that picture, if I went up to anybody on your staff under the age of 40 and said, who is Ernest Borgnine? Who is Burt <laughs> Lancaster? Who is Donna Reed? Who is Deborah Kerr? Do you think any of them have any knowledge of anybody that's in this movie except for Frank Sinatra? And it's not because Frank Sinatra was in this movie. Yeah. I don't know if, even if this is waned within the industry, the public's just not going to know much about this movie. I think at the time, within maybe the first couple of decades, this was a very famous movie. It had a very famous sequence. It was one of the most highly nominated and decorated Academy Award winners of all time, but it just hasn't held up over time in the way that I think other films somehow got a little bit better billing or were more fondly remembered. To me, this if we're talking about another movie that I think is really good, that should be promoted more, but just hasn't stood the timelessness aspect of their history, you could say The Best Years of Our Lives, a film we brought up earlier another Best Picture winner that was broadly decorated and celebrated at the time. But for whatever reason, 
people just don't watch it in the same way unless you're kind of a cinephile or an industry person like you and I are. We both like these films, or in my case, I really love The Best Years of Our Lives, but it's just not one that I think stuck with people because you mentioned any of the actors from that movie and nobody will know who they are. So classic film is something that's dying out for most people as we're just waiting for whatever the next release of Emily in Paris is on Netflix. <laughs> okay. I'm sorry. <sighs> We're squid game. Oh, which I've never seen. I just can't bring myself to uh, watch it. You actually might enjoy it, but it's, it's a little intense. It's violent, but I, I don't know. You have this strange, aversion to a lot of things that are popular while also stuff that isn't like a sitcom that you can find apparently easy viewing. I can watch a lot of violent things while I'm trying to fall asleep. It doesn't bother me in the same way that it apparently does you. But regardless, I have to give it a two on that end of it. So that'll put me at a seven. Okay. So go with your impact and significance. All right but I got to give the average here first, unless you want to help me here. No, that's fine. So it's a 7.75 between us, because uh, I'm the better of the two of us at math. Impact significance, five for the industry. It was a highly grossing film in a time where there were not a lot of films, but those that did, you know, they were the big films of the time. They were part of pop culture. They were celebrated. And... It's probably one of the best performers at the Oscars. Not in the total amount of wins, but 13 nominations is pretty high on the list for just total nominations. And eight wins is nothing to slouch at. So I think from any way you slice it, and we talked already about the careers that were made on the backing of this film, it's a five. For the audience, I think that it doesn't quite rise to some of the biggest levels that we've ever had as far as audience reaction to a movie. But given that it's one of the highest grossing films of the 50s, its cultural impact at the time, how celebrated it was, and how universally praised it seemed to be, I got to go with a 4.5. So that's a 9.5 for me. (sighs) Well, we have the same score. I mean, you, you can't have best picture, best director, best supporting actor and actress and not have a five for the industry. As for the public, it was the second highest of the film or of the year, and one of the highest grossing films of the decade. Third highest of fifty-three. I said that in the recognition portion. It was behind. I had read second highest, but okay. No, it was behind Peter Pan and a movie called The Robe that I have no idea what it is. It is a film that was about the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. The robe was what they gambled for, the Roman centurions gambled for at the feet of the cross. So basically it was wasp bait. Well, it was uh, along the whole line of, you know, we had these religiously based films in the 50s. It was Ben-Hur to some extent. It was... The Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments. But those movies still, to a certain degree, play well up until maybe the last 10 years. That's why Passion of the Christ was such a big deal. Again, it was wasp bait. Yeah. 
the title of the film still sounds like it was a M. Night Shyamalan movie. <laughs> okay. Anyway, so the public award the 4.5 also. So I had a 9.5. So did you need help with the math on this one? Since you don't really need to do much math, yes. How about you help? 9.5. Well, thank you. I- I'm so glad that you were here for that. Yeah. I couldn't have done it without you. Yes, making fun of my math limitations because of a numerical dyslexia. Yeah, that that's what I'm really making fun of there. Okay. Yeah. Especially since I'm pretty sure I have the same issue. Uh-huh. Sure. Anyway, novelty. Ugh. I couldn't think of any film that provided the same raw presentation of what military life was outside of war. And so I think even though it's it's the context and not the story that makes a difference, so I had to give it a little bit down because the story or the, the relationships involved here were not unique, but where it was taking place was. So I went with an eight for novelty. So you seem to be praising it upward, whereas I'm probably going to be going the opposite direction in how I felt it wasn't necessarily the most novel, and yet we arrive at the same score. So I do think that this could have been very, very novel in its time due to the amount of things that were in the book that were not explored, such as the prostitution that we mentioned where In the movie, it just makes her seem like she's a hostess at some club instead of being a prostitute. Or the fact that the reason Deborah Kerr's character doesn't have, is not able to have children is because she was pregnant, she lost the child, and then subsequently had to have a hysterectomy because she got gonorrhea from her cheating husband. Yeah. I'm sure that would have played well with the MPAA in 1953. (laughs) (laughs) yeah when you couldn't even say helicopter you had to say hecopter oh boy okay yeah so i would be curious if somebody redid the book and put in all of the other aspects that were watered down in the 50s and really brought forth some of the more novel aspects of the novel but Regardless of itself, I do think there are some angles of this that are very novel, not necessarily in the filmmaking itself, but in the storytelling and the themes of this film. Given the fact that the military was basically banning it among their ranks, I think even that said, it had to be somewhat novel to draw the ire of the armed forces. On the other hand, you mentioned that you couldn't think of too many other films that had this level of disillusionment and questions outside of life from the army. We mentioned the best years of our lives, which is kind of the reverse fixture of this. And I know there's at least a couple of other handful of films that give somewhat of a similar vibe to this film, but not necessarily in the same way. So I don't think that it's, off on its own with some of its themes. And so thus I can't go much higher than an eight. I thought it's novel, but it's not necessarily the most novel thing I've seen from the fifties. If that makes any sense. Sure. 
So that's an eight average between us. Classicness. All right. Well, this was a tough one. I couldn't find a whole lot. The movie was set in 1941. It was filmed in 1953. Times were different than they are now. So I had a difficult time really grasping the misogyny that was going on. This is a very testosterone-driven film, although the female characters had significant roles and were significant in the overall outcome. It had violence, but it didn't actually show the violence to a large extent. It implied it. So I had a hard time coming up with a classicness definition. So based on what I saw and how it would play out, I went with an eight because that was about where, in fairness, I could do it. I similarly struggled with this category because on first glance, it doesn't seemingly have a lot of issues, but there are racial slurs used throughout the movie. There's body shaming, which I guess if you're under 20, that'll be a much bigger deal. There's a lot of outdated prejudices. You mentioned the kind of toxic masculinity trope that is kind of consistent throughout the film. I had a hard time figuring out exactly what wasn't classic about this, but given the fact that it seemingly has lost some of its timelessness and hasn't necessarily aged as one of the great films of all time to some people and has kind of lost its audience over time. I just didn't feel that I could come up from my seven the way I normally would. And it has a couple of factors that weigh against it collectively that I actually went down and I put it at a six. Oh, okay. So that'll be a seven average between the two of us. Rewatchability, to me, this is the definition of a seven. Something that I should watch probably every couple of years just to refresh my memory on it. It's a good enough film, but it's not something I'm necessarily seeking out regularly in order to, oh, I need to make sure that every year I watch from here to eternity. It's such a great viewing. So this is the definition of a seven for me. I went with 7.5 simply. I gave the extra half point for if I'm flipping through the channels and I'm sitting around and it's uh, 9.30 and there's nothing else on, I'm going to go, oh, I'm going to sit and watch this for a while before bed. So I gave it the extra half point up. But you also are a little bit more predisposed to liking some of these war films than I am. Like, I feel that way about the best years of our lives, but I'm not sure I feel that about this. Yeah, I'm a military historian by choice, I guess. And so, yes, this makes some difference to me. So that's a 7.25 average between the two of us. Then we have audience score with an 82% for Google users and an 84% for Rotten Tomato users, giving us an 8.3. So to recap the categories, we had a 7.75 for Legacy. We had a 9.5 for Impact Significance, an 8 for Novelty, 7 for Classicness, 7.25 for Rewatchability, and an 8.3 for Audience Score, giving us a final total of 47.8. And that will currently put it on our list between Do the Right Thing and Interstellar. Okay. Remaining questions. One of the ones that's always 
kind of been somewhat ambiguous to me in watching the final part of the movie. And I think the film is suggesting, in one sense, both things in the way that you kind of view the film. I think in this is maybe one of the Rorschach moments within this movie. Did Pruitt want to reach his company, as he seemingly said and was driven to do when he left Lorraine's house? Or, by the end of the film, did it seem more like it was somewhat of a an assisted suicide? <laughs> well, I understand your point, but he he did, but he only wanted to do it on his terms. And that meant, you know, he's not going to stop for the centuries. Okay, so Lorene mentions that he was either going to go to the infirmary due to his side, or he was going to be thrown in the brig, and he seemingly doesn't think that's going to be a problem because they're at war, and they'll basically try and figure out how to patch him up and send him back out because they need bodies. So if that's the case, just turn yourself in. (laughs) Yeah. Like, if there's going to be no consequences, I just don't understand that. It makes no sense unless your entire endeavor is that you really don't feel like you have anything to contribute, and so you don't mind what happens to you. I I guess I just, I take it from both sides. I think there is a sincerity when he leaves Lorene's house that he wants to rejoin the only place that he's ever felt like he belonged. But at the same time, that scene just always strikes me oddly and I just can't really get it out of my head. Yeah. Okay. For me, yeah, I know it's going to be a very minute little point, but it's one that every time I've watched this film, it draws me, it makes me just like, uh, where's the technical advisor? The BARs, they're shooting the machine guns at the Japanese planes on the roof. They're holding the fricking barrel. Which would have melted their hand off. Yes. Within the first 30 seconds of holding that gun and firing it, their fingers would be burned off. That barrel was so hot that you had to have asbestos gloves to hold it unless you had a tripod. And yet they're just, no problem. I'm like, really? Am I the only one who picks this out? No, I thought it was odd myself, and I'm not a military expert by any means. <laughs> I, just, I just was floored. Every time I see that, I go, okay, and how is it that you're holding this flaming hot gun barrel without, like, you know, like, absolutely s- destroying your hands? Try this one on for size. Something I just noticed while watching the film and finishing it this evening. Pruitt dies in a sand trap. Yes. Why is he on a golf course? Because (laughs) (laughs) to this day, a large portion of some of the best real estate in the United States is owned by the United States military for golf courses for officers to play on. They own over like 400 golf courses worldwide. Yes. It's insane. I know. The comedian Ron White actually made a good point, which is he went and sat down and figured out where the military bases are in the United States. And he figured out that if the uh, military were just to find other locations, move the bases there and sell the land that the bases are on, 
which a lot of times is oceanfront, they could probably fund the military for 10 or 15 years without any contributions from the federal government's uh, budget. I'll take it one step further. I'll go from the perspective of George Carlin. We could solve the homeless problem in America if we just built low-class housing on all of the fucking golf courses. I love to play golf, but there are way too many courses. (laughs) Yeah, I know. It's kind of ridiculous sometimes. My last one. What do you make of Alma's final speech? Well, she just creates the narrative by which she can survive or which she makes herself better than she was. This is something where I'd be curious to see how the book treats it versus how the movie does, because it seemingly comes out of left field. Because I specifically remember that he says both of my parents are dead, so I never found any place to belong except in the army. And she mentions that the mother wanted her to come to the States to live with them. Yes. So there's a contradiction of stories. Is this something that she simply invented as a narrative to, I guess, make herself feel better? Yes. Yes, it's exactly it. Yes, it's to improve herself and make herself better. I'll readily admit that I don't spend a lot of time reading fiction because I have such a curious mind. I spend most of my time reading nonfiction because I'm trying to learn about history or politics or science or business, whatever. Okay, I actually have some incentive to go and get the original book and read it just to further my understanding of the film. You don't read fiction. I do, but it's very rare, and it's usually a mystery. Like, I've been reading the Perot. You haven't done that in over a year. Um, Less than, about nine months. Okay. I don't know. I The reason I ask, and your explanation could be very valid. It's not one I necessarily considered, but it just struck me as odd, given that it doesn't seem to rely on any of the details we've had up to that point. So one person is clearly lying, and that begs the question of who. And if it is as you say it is, then I could seemingly understand that explanation, but I think it's ambiguous enough that you can interpret your own understanding of that particular moment. So I guess it's one of the biggest open-ended questions of the movie. Yeah. I'm willing to accept multiple different explanations of it, and that's why I think, again, it becomes somewhat of a Rorschach of how you view the movie. All right, final thoughts for the week. We saw She Said for my birthday. I enjoyed it. I thought it was a very well-done film, and I would encourage people to watch it and uh, go to your theater, get a nice bucket of popcorn, and sit down and watch it. I know you had a little different view on some of it, and um, everybody is entitled to go and search for their own opinion on a film, but I think it uh, was a well-done film myself. I think there were individual moments of brilliance, individual scenes that I thought were w- really well done. I think that Andre Brar was very good as the editor of the film, the editor in the film. I thought that the woman that was above them. I, I can never rem- remember the actress's name. Oh, um, Patricia Clarkson. Patricia Clarkson, I thought was exceptional. I thought Zoe Kazan and 
Carrie Mulligan were also exceptional in the movie. You know, going back two years, that I thought Carrie Mulligan should have won a Best Actress two years ago when she did the movie we both loved at the time, which the name escapes me right now, but I'm sure it'll come back to me after we're done here. Regardless, I just thought that the storytelling, the script of the movie was not very strong and that it was a bit disjointed in how it was edited and how they went about focusing on different characters. So it just played out differently than a lot of the journalism movies that we're accustomed to. And so it became a little bit up and down for me that way. If you looked for it for certain moments of brilliance, I think it had that. But is it among the 10 best films I've seen this year? Probably not. But I think it very well could secure an Oscar nomination because of its subject material. And you have to have 10 best picture nominees. Given the status of you know how few films have actually come out this year, it's going to be in the running. And I think it could be a potential contender for getting a Best Picture nomination. I just don't know how many other nominations outside of its acting performances it's going to get. And that's basically the only other comment. And, well, I take that aback. Okay, I'm of an age. I grew up in the uh, 70s and 80s. Uh, losing Christy McVie today, we're going to start losing more and more of the 60s, 70s, and 80s rock musicians that are icons. Or actors. Yeah, it's my generation of music. Each generation has its music. Unfortunately, we're going to lose that sound. Uh, fortunately, the recordings that we have and the fact that they're being digitalized and made available and reproduced we'll have them for a long time but it just again reminds me how i'm aging and the music from which i developed my musical taste is slowly passing so that leads me to the very easy transition of you just turned 59 over the weekend so i belated happy birthday on the show. Thank you. But I will also make a very quick recommendation of my own for a show that just finished up its second season that I think is hilarious, especially if you like dark comedy. And it's completely ridiculous. I can't stand Josh Gad's character, but I watched (laughs) the show specifically because Hugh Laurie in a comedy, I'm going to be there for Avenue 5 on HBO is a joy. It is one of the most ridiculous things I think I've ever seen. It's a completely futuristic world, so if you don't like fantasy or sci-fi, it's probably not for you. But it is one of the most asinine shows, and I am there for it all the time. It probably is going to get canceled by Warner's HBO at some point because it probably costs them a bunch of money in order to do this kind of like sci-fi production sets type of thing for an eight episode comedy arc that I'm guessing I might be one of maybe a couple thousand people that actually watches the damn show. But if I can do something from my little corner of the universe to promote a show that I think is hilarious, I'll do it. So Avenue five, you can watch it on HBO, HBO max, seek it out. Watch a couple of episodes, see what you think, but it is joyously, uproariously funny. 
I'm here for a third season if they decide that they're so inclined to make one, because I didn't think they were going to get a second season. It was something that kind of debuted, I think, just before the pandemic. Yes. And uh, I didn't think many people were watching it at that point, but yeah. So that'll do it for us this week. Thank you for listening. Where are you headed, cowboy? Nowhere special? Nowhere special. I always wanted to go there. Next week, to get ready for the upcoming sequel, we will be discussing the highest grossing movie of all time, Avatar from 2009, written and directed by James Cameron, starring Sam Worthington, Zoe Saldana, and Sigourney Weaver. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. Please like, follow, rate, and review, or whatever on whichever platform you have so that more can join in on our fun. You can also email the show at thenewronnieduncanstudios.com or sign up for our newsletter, find our new Facebook page under Greatest Movie of All Time Podcast, or find us on Instagram, Twitter, or now TikTok at the handle at Podcast. Greatest Movie of All Time is a production of Ronnie Duncan Studios. Our show is mixed, edited, and written by Thomas Duncan. Our music is thanks to Purple Planet Music. Our technical provider and distributor is Captivate FM.